Today's scripture reading is John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, and you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Thank you, Paul. Let me ask you a, a question. Have you ever been burned in a relationship? Have you ever been burned by a relationship? Have you ever have you ever been willing to let someone into your life? You let down the guard, you let somebody into your life, you are vulnerable with them to some extent, uh, in the sense at least that you're just simply honest with them. You let them into your life, and not only have you been willing to let them into your life, but you've been willing to get into their life as well, so you've been willing to invest time and energy in their life and in their mess and in whatever difficulties and challenges they have, you've been willing to invest in them. So you've been willing to let them into your life and then you've been willing to get into their life uh, and then something goes wrong, something, it blows up, it fizzles out and you're left feeling burned. Maybe angry, disappointed, jaded perhaps. Have you ever been burned before? Have you ever been burned uh, in a, perhaps a business relationship, right? You, you, you go into a partnership with someone in business and you let them into your life and you let them into your life in the sense that you, you are vulnerable with them financially, right? You, your, your financial well-being and even the financial well-being of your family, maybe you're willing to sort of rest that in part on their shoulders. You're being vulnerable. You're letting them into your life financially. 
And not just that, but you're, you're willing to get into their life and you're willing to shoulder the burden that you, you begin to take on financial responsibility for them as well and you bear that burden, you bear that load as well. And so you let them into your life and you get into their life and then something blows up, it fizzles out and you are left feeling burned, disappointed, jaded. Have you ever been burned before? Have you ever been burned by a relationship in church? You ever been burned in church before? You ever been burned in church before? You, you invest in the lives of people in a church. You invest in them. You, you are willing to, to serve and to pour into the lives of people. So you're willing to get into their lives. And you're also willing to let them into your life. You allow yourself to be vulnerable before a group of people and and you let them into your life and you get into their life and something blows up, uh, fizzles out, and you're left feeling burned. You ever been burned before? Today we're continuing in this series, a three-part series in which we're looking at our core values, core values which from day one, I've, I've from the first time I came here, had these sort of core values in mind because I believe they come straight from the scriptures. And and these are are values that I think are at the heart of the Christian faith. That any church that is going to be authentic to what the Bible is about is going to seek to instill these values. And so we're looking at these three, we're looking at three core values. And and, and the last week we looked at the core value of being gospel-centered. Gospel-centered, and we use the word grace because grace is at the heart of the gospel. And, and gospel just gospel means good news. Literally, gospel means good news, and it's referring to the good news of Jesus. And really, at the heart of the good news of Jesus, what that good news is 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 that is that is that if you look at Jesus, this is what the heart of the Christian faith really is. If you look at Jesus, you see who God is. That the fullness of God is revealed in the person of Jesus, like, like no one else. Another way of saying it, flipping that around, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And when you, when you have that lens, right, then you look at a passage like we're looking at today, and right here in this passage, you just see the gospel, you just see the good news, Because the good news of the gospel is that our God, as revealed in Jesus, our God is a God who has humbled himself. Our God is a God who has humbled himself and has come to this world because he loves us so much. He's come here to be our servant. He's come here to be our, and this is what this passage is about. This is what's so bizarre, right? So the the setting is, this is the, this is coming in the last couple of days of Jesus' life and he's about to have this meal with the disciples, and of course, what's interesting is that you, you look back just a, a chapter before, a couple chapters before, and it talks about the triumphal entry, and it, it talks about Jesus coming in in the crowd saying, saying, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is, is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and, and, and you, you know from the context there that, that probably for them, they're seeing all of these sort of political overtones of, of here comes this man who is the king of Israel, the long-awaited king, and he's going to come, and, and, and they're, maybe they're expecting that at this point, when they have this meal, that maybe, maybe some of them are kind of hoping, of course, they know they've been with him a little while, so they should have known this is not where it was going, but maybe they're still hoping, okay, this is actually when he's going to open up his battle plans. 
This is this one he's going to say, Peter, you're going to take a group of people and you're going to attack from the right. And, 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 and John, you're going to attack from the left and, and, you're, and I'm going to come in from the middle. And, and maybe that's what they're hoping, expecting something like that. And what is he desisting? Could not have been more the opposite. I mean, I think maybe they were they were hoping for like a like a like a, a Mayweather McGregor kind of Messiah. I couldn't laugh at the irony that I'm preaching on this passage the day after the Mayweather McGregor fight. Whatever, I actually went over to Eric Martin's house to watch it, and then when I realized that that it started at nine, but that meant that the first of the sixteen thousand other fights that start at nine, and I don't even know when it started three in the morning. So I'm like, I don't think I'm going to make it. It's kind of ironic that I'm preaching on this passage where Jesus says, no, that's, that's actually not what God is like. That God exercises his reign in this world paradoxically, not through the wielding of power, but through the relinquishing of it. That's a paradox you don't solve. It's a paradox you simply rest in. And this is what it is. I mean, Jesus, what I love about this is one of my favorite passages here because you find in verses Three and four, you see exactly this contrast. Jesus knew, look at this, verse three, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. All right? This is the I am the man kind of moment. Like, I'm it. I, am the, I, have, I, have, I came from God. I, I'm in this mysterious way. I am God. I'm one with God. I'm, I mean, it's just, you know, I am, I've been with God from all of eternity. I'm coming to earth I have all the power, I'm returning. I mean, it's just this moment, this total reflection on everything is mine. And then in the very next verse, what does it say? So, so he realizes this, he you know, has this realization once again. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around the very heart of the gospel is that we have a God who is most, his most fundamental characteristic is that he is a God of self-giving love. His most fundamental characteristic is that at the very heart of who he is is complete and total self-giving, sacrificial love. That he loves us not because of anything that we are, but because of who he is. Like, you see, that's who he is. We tend to love something or someone because of what it is. I love it because of something that is in it. That's why I love it. But, but no, this is, no, he loves because of who he is, and it has nothing to do with what it is. That's just who he is. And, and that kind of love means that everything that comes from him is what? It's grace. That we can be in a relationship with him on the basis of grace. Once again, it's that when you, when you look in the mirror, you don't see that individual who got a bad evaluation at work. You don't see that individual who made a, a, a poor business or financial decision, and now you're concerned about your family. You're, you, don't see, you don't see that individual who you're boy, you know, your, your kids aren't turning out the way you thought, and you wonder if it's your parenting. You don't see that. When you look in the mirror, you see a God who wants to wash your feet. 
and serve you because he loves you so much. Right, that's the gospel, that's the grace of God, that's the heart, that's the core, core value. And we, we looked at that last week, but you got to look at it again because it just keeps popping up. I mean, I just can't get away from it because it's just everywhere in the Bible. And so the question then that emerges for us today is then how, how does the gospel shape Christian community? Because what we're going to look at here today is the second core value, and that is that we are that we are to be community-oriented. One of the things that you find throughout the Bible is the centrality of, of community. You go back and you look in the Old Testament, and if you just look at the period of history from David um, all, all the way to the end, to the end of the kings, and, and you just with this five, six hundred-year period, and one way of summarizing that entire period of history in the life of the people of Israel is that it's the story of God trying to get them to get together and worship Him in community. That they love to kind of go off and worship them by themselves. They'd go off and, and build these little altars and just kind of kind of worship them sort of in, in isolation. And and I mean oftentimes they weren't even worshiping him. But sometimes they were they were worshiping him, but they would still be off and they wanted to do it sort of on their own in isolation. And so much of that entire period of history can be summed up as him trying to bring them together to Jerusalem to worship in community. And then throughout the New Testament we see the importance of community, that when the Spirit of God comes upon the early church, they are united. They just start living life together. They just start doing everything together. They're just one in community. In the book of Hebrews, it actually warns against, uh, it warns against a lifestyle of, of moving away from this. It says, it says, do not get out of the habit of meeting together. So we see this, this concept of community and the importance of community just, just going through the pages of Scripture. And so what we're looking at today is, well, how does the gospel, how does the, the nature of who Jesus is shape that community, the nature of that kind of community? And the first thing that I think we can pull from this, there are a number of things that we could pull from this, but the first thing I think we can pull from this is that it creates a community where we are willing to let people into our lives. It creates a community where we're willing to let people into our lives. It creates a community where we're willing to let people in between the toes of our soul. We're willing to let people in between the toes of our soul. We're willing to let people in between our toes. You see, what, what does Jesus do here? He washes their feet. Now, as we're going to see here, we're going to see here in a minute, uh, of course, what he's doing here, by washing their feet, he's, extra, he's showing a, a, a tremendous amount of humility, right? He's becoming the servant, and he's serving them. So we're going to see that here in a minute. But what I also want us to see here is that I think there's also something rather humbling about getting your feet washed. There's something sort of humbling about it, right? I mean, especially, I mean, if you're getting your feet washed by a slave... That may not be that humbling. They're just, because you don't really think much about them. They're just your slave. They're just washing your feet. But if, if you're getting your feet washed by someone you respect, like what if your boss came to you, hey, I'm going to wash your feet? That's a little weird. I mean, even somebody you see as a peer, as an equal, they want to wash your feet. There's almost something vulnerable about that. Again, if it's just like a slave or a servant, that's, I mean, let's put it this way. If your dog comes up, starts licking your feet, 
I mean, you might be annoyed, but you don't feel vulnerable, exposed. But if your friend comes up and starts to wash your feet, that's a little bit comfortable. It's a little, you feel a little bit vulnerable. Why is that? Well, you know, I, I think it's because, you know, feet are not really very exceptional. Feet are, you know, at their best, mundane, and at their worst, nasty. Right? At their, at their best, feet are mundane. At their worst, they're nasty. Let's put it this way. Have you ever played matchmaker and, you know, try to, try to hook up two people, two single people? Have you ever played matchmaker? You know, maybe you've got a, a friend who they're starting to get older and you feel like, boy, I want to try to, try to hook them up. Have you ever played matchmaker? Uh, my mom did once. She tried to play matchmaker. When I turned 30, uh, she, without telling me, signed me up for eHarmony. She filled out a profile in my name when I turned 30, right? I think I could probably sue her for this at this point. Uh, fortunately, in that period, I met Laura, and, and on my own, thank you very much. I met Laura, and so she, but she, she was playing matchmaker. But have you ever played matchmaker before where you're trying to set two people up? Maybe, again, you've got guy who's getting a little bit older, someone like I was, and you want to set him up with some woman, and you, you find some woman, you're like, this, this woman's perfect for him. Let me get, would you, here's, would you ever say to him something like, oh my gosh, you have got to check her out. Her feet are awesome. Have you ever said that? Oh my gosh, check out her feet. No, I mean, you might, you might say, look at her hair, she's, she's funny, she's, you know, beautiful, she's, you know, she's, she's hardworking, she's, you know, very caring and kind. You're just never going to say, check out her feet. Because feet, at their best, are mundane. At their worst, they're nasty. And so there's sort of a vulnerability here. There's a vulnerability about about allowing somebody to wash your feet. And, of course, what Jesus is saying here, he's pointing to this reality, starting with himself. He's saying, look, if you want to be a, a part of me, okay, if you want to follow me, you've got to let me wash your feet. And this, of course, becomes symbolic. It's a way of saying, if you want to follow me, Jesus is saying, you've got to let me into your life. You've got to be willing to humble yourself and let me into your life. You've got to be willing to let me into your soul. Let me get between the toes of your soul. And so, you know, Peter, Peter kind of freaks out here, right? And this is the point. He's like, oh, no, no. You, no, I will wash your feet. And, and what does Jesus say? No, if, if, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can have no part of me. If you aren't willing to be vulnerable before me. He says, this is the whole point, is allowing me to come in because I love you. And no matter how nasty the feet of your soul is, I'm here to, to take care of you and love you and make you well. And if you, if you can't be vulnerable before me, Jared Wilson said something like this. He says, the the bar for the gospel is so low. It's so low. It's just, he lets sinners in. That's the bar, how low it is. And so the question is not, can you make it above the bar? The question is, are you willing to go below the bar? Like, are you willing to go that low and be vulnerable before Jesus, right? 
But then what does he say? He says, as I have washed your feet, now you need to wash one another's feet. You need to wash one another's feet. So he's saying not only, not only should you be vulnerable before me, but the idea here is that to be a follower of Jesus means there's a willingness to be vulnerable before his people. To establish a community, gospel-centered community, is a community where we're willing to let people into our, our lives. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Confess your sins to each other. Now, I think, you know, I think that's uh, sometimes there's a kind of a weird one for, especially for Protestants, right? Because we're like, wait, no, I don't, I don't need to confess to anybody. I just, go straight to, I just go straight to Jesus, right? I just go straight to Jesus. And, of course, that's true, right? Theologically, you don't have to go through somebody for your sins to be forgiven. That's, that's certainly true. But you know what? I, I, I've come to the realization, and this is partially through personal experience, I think I've come to the realization that if you're not willing to confess it to somebody else, it probably means you're not really willing to let go of it. It's not really, you know, a genuine confession is, is I'm sorry for, for this, what I've done or this lifestyle that I've been engaging in, this hard attitude that, I'm acting upon. I'm, I'm sorry for that. And a genuine confession is, is and I'm, I don't want to do it again. I want to turn away from it, right? And again, the, the fancy Christian word is repentance, but it's just turning away. I'm not going to do that anymore. That's a genuine confession. And I would suggest that I think sometimes we don't confess it to others because we're not really ready to turn. And so, you know, because once you say it to somebody else, now it's really out there. And so I wonder sometimes, that if we're not really willing to confess it to someone else, if it's even genuine in the first place. And so Jesus says that we're trying to create a community where people are willing to be vulnerable before others, let them into the, 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 between the toes of their souls. Now, of course, before we could do that, right, we're kind of, truth is we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here a little bit. Before you can have somebody wash your feet, let, let them into your life, you've actually got to be around them to begin with. In other words, you, you've just got to be in community to begin with. And so this is why, as, as, and I, I drive this home all the, all the time, that community requires intentionality. I mean, just to be with people, just to be around them requires intentionality. And I, I say this all the time, we live in a day and age where community does not happen naturally. Uh, just the way our culture is set up, there are so many things about modern culture which do not lend itself towards naturally creating community. There's all kinds of evidence that really shows that from the post-World War II generation on, that just basic changes in the way our society operates, things in themselves aren't necessarily bad. They just are part of modern culture, have begun to shape our culture in such a way that community doesn't happen naturally. Things like post-World War II generation, uh, there was personal automobile ownership. People started to own their own cars increasingly. And what that meant is, well, well now it led to this whole rise of the suburbia, where if you've got a car, you can, it's easier. You can live over here, and you can work over here, and that could be 30, 40 miles apart. It doesn't really matter because you can drive. And so now your community is separated. You've kind of got two completely separate communities, which kind of diffuses the potency of either one of them. Right, so that's one of the ways in which just the, net, the way our, our world is set up, 
that community doesn't happen naturally. Then, then, it, then in addition to that, you've, you've got the fact that, you know, most homes these days, they have back porches with fenced-in backyards instead of front porches. Then in previous generations, people, they would have front porches. They'd sit on the front porch, and then, then community would just more naturally happen. You'd be involved in people's lives. Now everybody just sits on the back porch, fenced-in backyard, and they don't really see each other. Then another thing that's happened, in television. Again, this is all from post-World War II. Television, the rise of television in the 50s. And now people just stay inside, and they watch their TV instead of being out with people. And so all of these things, none of these things are in of themselves intrinsically bad. It's just that the cumulative effect is is that we don't naturally end up in community, that it requires intentionality. So this is why we have our community group ministry. I think in previous generations, you you need a community group ministry. I mean, people are in community. But see, now we have to have have something intentional in in order for it to happen. So this is, once again, I want to encourage you, if you've been in a community group, when we kick kick them off again in the fall, Jump right back in. There might be some changes mixing around, but get back in community group. If you haven't been in one, I would encourage you to get in one. You've got to be intentional about it. Now, here, here's where I will say some of you might want to just kind of pause for a moment and say, Kevin, look, here's the thing. Kevin, I'm not like you. Um, you are, you know, you get up and speak in front of people. You're comfortable being around and being in front of people. And you're like, that's just not really how I am. Let me let you in a little secret about your pastor, Kevin Hamlin. You guys ready for this? I don't really like being around people. <laughs> I can do it. I'm pretty good at it. But I don't, I mean, I do. I do like being around people. But what I mean by that is that I don't naturally gravitate towards that. My, that's not my natural inclination. My natural inclination is to sit on the porch and read a book. That, I mean, that's, that's what I... That's my thing. I am an introvert all the way. When we were on sabbatical, probably my favorite part of the sabbatical was when, I mean, look, even like the people I love the most, I don't really want to be around them all the time. My kids, I love them to death, but goodness gracious, I don't want to be around them. I mean, I do, but not all the time. And so, so we're on sabbatical, and, and we go to my brother's house, and we went there. He knew it. I told him straight up, I'm going there so that you can watch my kids. That's it. That's why I'm going there. I don't care if I see you or not, right? And he has a 10-year-old daughter who just played with my kids for two and a half weeks. And I could just go down to the lake by his house and just read. Right? That's me. I don't naturally gravitate towards being around people. But here, here's, here's the thing. Here's what I've come to realize. Even though I am an introvert, I really do need people. I really do need community. You know, when we came back from our sabbatical, just last week or a week and a half ago, I'll be straight up with you. The first couple of days were a little rough. It was a rough landing. Not because of anything any of you did. You guys didn't do it. You guys have been incredibly gracious to me. But admittedly, like I came back and, and then, you know, truthfully, just like all the like thinking about church and all the things, the issues that need to be addressed and, you know, all of this kind of stuff that I'd managed to disconnect from, all of that just kind of came back. So it was all like in my head, really. And it was kind of a rough couple days kind of settling back into some of that. And then I got invited to the Rodriguez's house. Ray and Christine had our community group over just to hang out and and have a meal. And that was the moment when I started to settle back in. That was the moment when I was like, okay, this this is a great thing. 
this is a great thing. You see, even me, even an introvert realizes that I really do need community. Here, here's what I'd say. Being alone, being alone is, is a little bit like, uh, uh, you know, the frog in the pot. You guys know this, the frog in the pot? Okay, if you have a, a pot of boiling water and you put a frog in the, in the pot of boiling water, the frog will jump out, right? Because, ah, right? But if you take a pot of water and you set it on the stove and it's just, you know, normal tap water and you put the frog in and you turn the heat on and it slowly starts to heat up, the frog doesn't get out. The frog just sits in there until it gets cooked. And I would say that being alone is like the frog in the pot. You see, at first, it's great, right? In fact, at first, you're alone, and it feels like it's getting better. It's warming up. It's like a jacuzzi. Mm. You know, frog starts to kick back. Mm. Get a book, you know? I I mean, just sitting there in the jacuzzi, this is wonderful. Yeah, but it's actually cooking. See, that being alone is the same way. If you spend time by yourself, at first, it's, oh, this is awesome. I just want more of this, more of this, more of this, more of this. But I think you're, you're getting cooked. I actually realized in hindsight, it would have been cool if I would thought about this ahead of time. If I'd actually brought a burner up here with a pot and some water, and I'd put the frog in at the beginning of the message. And then 40 minutes later, I'd pull out a dead frog. That would have been sweet. Okay, maybe not. Maybe not a good idea. Being alone is like being the, the frog in the pot. Look, we, we need community. We need to be intentional about it. What, is, what does gospel-shaped community look like? It's community well, where, first of all, we gather together in community, but it's also a, a community where we're, we're willing to let other people into our lives. So gospel-centered community, willing to let other people into our lives. And secondly, we're willing to get into the lives of other people. We're willing to let willing to get into the lives of other people. We're willing to deal with the toe jam of other people's lives. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That's what he's saying. He says, that's what, I, that's what I do. I'm the God, the maker, the creator of all things, and the very heart of who I am is that I get involved in the lives of people and I help them with the toe jam of their souls. The messiness of it, the difficultness of it, and, and this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. It's creating a community of people who are willing to get into the lives of other people. And so I want to I start an initiative here. This is, this is the initiative. And it's an initiative that we're going to use that, that borrows language uh, from the Bible, biblical language, along with uh, educational policy language. Okay, here's what it is. It's a new initiative called No Sheep Left Behind. I want to put forth an initiative called No Sheep Left Behind. Jesus talks about the church, the, 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 his followers as sheep that he goes after when they're off, that he cares for his sheep. And so, we want to start an initiative called No Sheep Left Behind. And what we're looking to do is to raise up leaders, raise up leaders who are willing to get involved in the lives of other people. Now, not stalk them, right? 
We're not trying to get nosy. You notice that Jesus does not offer to wash Pontius Pilate's feet. No, it's the people within his community. We're not trying to pry into people's lives. But if they're willing and they're open, we want to be intentional about seeking to be in their lives. And so we're looking to raise up leaders that are not, we're not just reactive, not just reacting to what other problems might be out there, but are taking the initiative to go in, to seek after, to pursue that, that no sheep would be left behind. And of course, one, you know, this is, again, one of the reasons why we started our community group ministry. Our community group ministry is sort of like the first line of defense. It's the first line of defense. And so the community group leaders have people in their groups, and then I meet with the community group leaders, and then they kind of will kind of report back to me about how things are going, and we'll see, does, any, does more attention need to be given to, to somebody over here, or how, how's this group doing? So I would just tell you, first and foremost, if you're not in a community group, I would encourage you to get in one, because that's the first line of defense for us to be able to pour into you. And we're looking for leaders. We have a, a, this is what's been great, is we have a we already have a number of wonderful leaders who are doing exactly this, and I could highlight any number of them, but I'm just going to highlight, I'm gonna highlight Randy uh, just this particular time. I had a chance to meet with Randy, had breakfast with him last week, and we got together at Westwood Diner, and we, you know what we did? We talked about you all. That's what we did. We, we talked about you, and we talked about specifically about the people whom, who, who Randy has committed to to pour into their lives. There are certain people in his community group and others that he said, yeah, these are people that I'm going to be intentional about going after. And so I was gone for two months, and I was able to sit back and just listen and hear how Randy has done this and continues to do this. And this is what we're looking to do is raise up, raise up a team of leaders who are willing to get into, into the lives of people as difficult and as challenging as that might be. So what does gospel-shaped community look like? Well, it's, it's community where we're willing to let people into our lives. It's community where we're willing to get into the lives of other people. And thirdly, it's a community where we depend on Jesus to clean up the mess. We depend on Jesus to clean up the mess because here's the truth. Apart from the grace of God, letting people into your life is a terrible idea. Apart from the grace of God, getting into the lives of other people is a terrible idea. You see, because community that takes place apart from the grace of God, here's what it is. Community that takes place apart from the grace of God, always becomes a power struggle. It always becomes a matter of control, a battle for control within those relationships, whether it's Nazi Germany or the dysfunction of your own home. Apart from the grace of God, it's really all about control in relationships. And what happens is, is apart from the grace of God, people... They set up rules. People set up rules to control, and others fight against those rules to push back against that control. And and, and this is where, and I I actually agree with the sort of postmodern insight 
that there is no such thing as truth. It's just power. All truth is, is, is power plays. In other words, what Nietzsche and Foucault have said is that truth, truth, there, there really isn't truth. What there is is people create truth, versions of truth, and they create versions of truth in order to control other people. And so every, every truth, in other words, all there is is spin. And so everybody spins it, everybody spins it as a matter of control. And so you, you, spin, you spin how things are in your home, and then the other folks in your home, because they sense the control, they spin it another way, right? Or put it in the, Emily Sayers, a, a singer-songwriter, she puts it this way. She says, as for the truth, it seems like we just pick a theory. It's the one that justifies our daily lives and backs us with quiver and arrow. So it just becomes this, this power struggle, this struggle for control. Except when the grace of God is present. You see, Jesus and the heart of who he is, he is the one truth that escapes this postmodern assertion about truth. It's the one truth that escapes this idea that truth is just about power. You know why? Because the central truth of Jesus is that he gave up his power. It's the only truth that escapes this critique is that he gave up his power. And that's the one truth that you can really trust. And so, if you're going to create a community where you let people into your lives and you get involved in the lives of other people, it simply has to rest in the grace of God. Otherwise, here's what's going to happen. You, you see, again, I, I started by this question. I asked, have you ever been burned before? Have you ever been in a relationship where you got burned? And if your answer was yes, here's what I want to tell you, is that if you boil it down in the end, the reason that you got burned is because grace was lacking in that relationship. If you got burned, grace was lacking. Either grace was lacking on their part or on your part or both. Either grace was lacking on on their part. In other words, they they weren't offering you self-giving love. They were offering you control. And that control comes through, through judgment, through judging other people. When we judge other people, we're really just trying to control them. That's really what that is. When you judge somebody, it's a matter of control. So, so if, if, if you were judged and looked down upon, right, it was, it, ju- judging someone is a matter of elevating your place, yourself to a place of superiority over them and in, in, in placing them in a position of inferiority. So it's a matter of control. So if they were judging you or condemning you, see, grace was lacking. Or, grace was lacking on your part. And, and they were trying to help you. They really were. Like, it was self-giving love that was trying to help you, but because, because you were not resting in the gospel, you took offense to it. Because your worth and your value was in what people think of you and not in the righteousness of Christ, you took offense to it. 
And so you got burned, but it was really because you didn't see where it was coming from. You see, but in either way, or in both, or a combination of both, what was lacking was grace. And so if we're going to be a community that seeks to let people into our lives, and we're going to be a community that, that pours into the lives of other people, we have to rely on the grace of God. If you pour into, and I said this last week, if you pour into the lives of other people and you are not resting in the grace of God, you'll get burned out, you'll become arrogant and bitter. Because you'll just get sick and tired of dealing with toe jam. And you'll start to feel, it, you'll start to feel superior. But if every time you say, Jesus is always cleaning up my toe jam, See, that's what, that's what fuels it. That's what, that's what makes it work. You see, apart from the grace of God, letting people into your life and getting into other people's lives is a terrible idea. And this is why I think C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, and The Great Divorce, is, he paints a, a fictional picture of heaven and hell. Just sort of his take on, on hell, and he, he, on heaven and hell. And hell, he describes as a place where people just keep getting farther and farther away from each other. They just move farther and farther and farther away from each other because hell is a place where there is absolutely no presence of God and there's no grace of God. And so being around other people without the grace of God is simply unbearable. So they just keep moving farther and farther and farther away. The problem is, Friends, the most recent events in Charlottesville. There are so many different insights that those events have revealed about our country, about human nature. A lot of things that we could say, but I I think one of the central things that just emerges from that on the most basic level is simply this. We live in a culture where increasingly people find it very difficult to get along. We live in a culture where people find it increasingly difficult to get along. That it's, it's all about control. It's all about people having different visions for how life should go. And in those visions, it's about squeezing others out. It's about raising some to a place of superiority over others in a place of inferiority. And, and so it, it just becomes this conflict. And the more, the more that the grace of God is absent, the more this is just going to sort of blow up. which means that the church has a remarkable opportunity. The church has a remarkable opportunity to model for our world what community looks like when we really rest in the grace of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are. God, may the beauty and the glory of your grace ever be new to us. God, we come before you and we We confess the ways in which we have not relied on your grace. 
And in so doing, Lord, we've not loved people well. We've sought to control people rather than love them. God, we confess that we have not received the help of other people well. That we've put up walls God, may the grace that is given to us through you, Lord Jesus, God, may that break all of it down. God, may we really create a community where we let people into our lives and we're able to get into the lives of others. We pray all this in Jesus' name.